Thank you, Bill. Thank you, everybody. Glad to be here. Uh, I am an alcoholic. My name is Doug. Uh, hi, everybody. And it is by the grace of a loving God who works through people like you, and by the simple expedient of attempting to apply AA's 12 steps as principles for successful living, that I've been sober continuously since the 16th of January, 1976. That's it. They they tell me uh, we're supposed to say what happened, what we used to be like, what happened and what we are like now, and that's the message. You know, you just heard the good part. Uh, rest of this hour, so if the smoke gets too thick, you can leave. But uh, I've already discovered there's no relief in the restrooms here. They've got a sound system that goes all over this place. So. <laughs> I think I'm going to start this thing out with a few little statements that we lawyers call disclaimers. And that's, uh, that's not a mystifying legal term. Drunks understand disclaimers. A disclaimer is something you say so that you don't have to be held responsible for anything else you say. (laughs) And mine are as follows. Uh, First of all, everything I say is a personal opinion. And if you can't prove it by the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't have to believe it at all. Secondly, even if you can prove it by the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is at least a possibility that if you want what I have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, that you need further therapy of some kind. (laughs) Next thing I have to say is that nothing I have to say is original. You know, I'm a drunk. Anything I know about living sober, I learned from sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love being quoted for things, you know, it's flattering to my ego. But if I step on your lines, don't worry about it. You know, you'll get credit for them at some point down the way. Uh, I remember one time, and uh, I, I was beaming. I was quoted in a meeting, and I was at the meeting. You know, and that's marvelous. Uh, and somebody said, Doug D. says. And a fellow in the back raised his hand, and he's been sober over 20 years. And he said, well, Doug got that from Floyd, who got that from Conroe Bill, and modesty alone prevents me from telling you where Bill got it. <laughs> But, you know, that's how this thing works, from one drunk to another, from one drunk to another, from one drunk to another. And I I said something in Kansas City about Ebby. I found out that I am wrong. Ebby did, in fact, die sober. Uh, But Ebby didn't stay continuously sober. And to me, there's a powerful message in that because uh, Bill got the message from Ebby. And Ebby's not considered one of the co-founders, so that even the co-founders got the message from another drunk. And that's the way this thing works. Finally, I want to say that I am not the Ayatollah, and this is not the Koran. And the reason I say that is that I admit that I am a doctrinaire, big book recovery, and I say that to remind myself that there's a distinction between being completely honest about what worked for me and being dogmatic about what must work for anybody else. Uh, if I, We have a terminal illness, you know. Uh, In fact, I don't like to talk about slips. I like to use the medical term, which is relapse. When people in a cancer hospital have a relapse, they don't sit around and laugh about it. Uh, And we do have a disease. So I have a responsibility, since this is a life-threatening condition, to be completely honest about what worked for me. But I also have to remember that what made this program attractive to me in the beginning was what they say in the book the complete absence of intolerance of any kind, the genuine democracy, uh, the real fellowship and tolerance. And if I don't practice those principles, I'm overstepping my own standards. So um, keep in mind that anything I say that sounds... Well, you know, keep in mind to begin with that I'm a drunk. Uh, one of the things they told me was that you don't have to agree with everything you hear in an AA meeting as long as you never disagree so strongly that you get up and leave the meeting. And uh, that's an important principle for me to remember. They said, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and some of these people are sick. (laughs) And I'm glad they told me that, because I was privileged to believe that when I didn't agree or didn't understand something that was being said, uh, that I could at least have the privilege of thinking that maybe you were the ones who were sick, you know. (laughs) Never mind that I'm the one who wets my pants in public. (laughs) 
And when I got here, I was still too proud to be willing to listen uh, without the privilege of believing that maybe you were the ones who were sick, and that's that's still a principle that I try to apply. I can tell you mostly uh, a great deal about my disease by telling you about the last day of my drinking, which was in many ways the most interesting day of my drinking, and clearly all of the symptoms of my disease were in full blossom. Uh, I was self-employed. And the distinction between being self-employed and being unemployed is that the self-employed have an office to be unemployed in. (laughs) And my last successful, uh, extended period of successful controlled drinking had been all day Thursday, January 15th, 1976. See, I'd got drunk Wednesday and done some asinine, embarrassing things, and so Thursday I swore I would not get drunk, and Thursday I didn't. I had about four beers, I went home, you know, I was on good behavior, didn't get arrested, and so Friday I had it figured out, and the mental aspect uh, that Joe and Charlie were talking about today, the obsession that some way, somehow, we will control and enjoy our drinking was in full operation. The physical aspect of the disease was in complete operation, as will become presently evident. The spiritual aspect of the disease, which I I can identify in my case with uh, a certain attitude of arrogance, that to me is the spiritual nature of the malady, and that was clearly operating because while I had a license to practice law, I was giving advice on virtually everything else. And it seemed to me that I had answers for people who didn't have questions yet. Uh, but, of course, that comes with the territory. And I had a fourth symptom operating that I have never seen in the big book. Uh, I've heard about it at enough meetings, though, that I think that somebody ought to list it. Maybe the next time the AMA does a listing of symptoms of alcoholism, they ought to put this one on the list. And that is the ability to diagnose alcoholism in someone else. <laughs> I think this is something we all have. And the reason we have it is you have to be able to get a cover, you know. When you're sitting in a beer joint at 10.30 in the morning and you begin, you're watching everybody else go to work, you know. You begin to think there might be something abnormal about your drinking. You know, an alcoholic can't afford to admit that because then you might have to do something about it. And it might be something drastic like quit drinking. So, of course, you have to be able to say, well, I'm not doing too badly, you know. But then there's old Bob over there and he's a drunk, you know. If I ever get as bad off as he is, I'll quit. Then when you get there, you decide, well, you know, Bob and I aren't doing too bad, but hell's got a problem. (laughs) So drinking alcoholic has to be able to pick out an alcoholic. And an alcoholic, by the way, one of the reasons doctors don't diagnose it is that an alcoholic is somebody who drinks more than you do. (laughs) And if you go to a doctor that you drink with, he's not going to diagnose your alcoholism. So this particular day, I had my drunk all picked out. I had a client by the name of Dave, and I, I'm convinced that sometime I'm going to run into Dave at one of these conventions, and he's going to correct me on this. But I had him diagnosed as not really having a legal problem. And Dave was a repeat client, but it seemed like every time he got in trouble, he'd, he'd been drunk behind it. And Dave had come into town to make a court appearance on a criminal matter. And had done something that I think is extremely uh, admirable and consistent with the ninth step of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had gone to the place where he got arrested once before, intending to make amends to the person that he had offended on that occasion. And that is consistent with the notion of making amends to the persons we've harmed wherever possible. Trouble with it is he went drunk, which is totally inconsistent with the first step. And as a result of his condition, he went to the wrong apartment. And the person that lived there didn't want to let him in and accept his apology for some reason. (laughs) Well, you know how we are when we're self-righteous. And Dave went and got a pool cue and started beating on the door with a pool cue, insisting on his right to make amends. Well, he called a security guard, and Dave commenced to beat the security guard about the head and shoulders with the pool cue. And this resulted in his immediate incarceration, and he called me again from the Harris County Jail. 
And this particular day, I was looking at his file, and I came to the conclusion that Dave was not really a pathological criminal. Dave just had a drinking problem. And, of course, being all-knowing and licensed to treat all problems, <laughs> I decided to set up what I later came to find out is called an intervention. And uh, I'm, I'm here to endorse the process of intervention, because as a result of this intervention, I got sober. And what I did was I called his boss. You know, you always start with the boss. And I said, tell me what you can about Dave. And he said, well, he's one of the best salesmen I've got when he's sober. And I said, well, that's just my point. I think Dave has a drinking problem, and I think we need to confront him and talk about it. You know, Richard said, well, it sounds like a good idea to me. How should we start? And I said, well, meet me at the Steak and Ale at 11.30. And bring your American Express card. I had... I had a habit of lunching with clients who had an American Express card. And we got down to the steak and ale and had our usual three martinis, which was sort of the first course, and had about three more. And I told uh, Richard what I proposed to do with Dave, which was we're going to go down there and talk to him and tell him he had a drinking problem and see if we could get his attention, get him to do something about it. And Richard thought that was a good idea. And, you know, when I got to AA, they told me I'd have to make a 180-degree change. I've discovered that a lot of people are intimidated by this, but I wasn't, because I'd been making a 180-degree change almost on a daily basis. <laughs> I'd go from being the only noticeable drunk in a nice restaurant to being the only professional at a nice house. And, you know, when you're wearing a coat and tie at a convenience store, you know you got class. <laughs> and... uh and hell, they'd let me run a tab at this place, so I knew I wasn't an alcoholic, because, you know, they don't give credit to people who don't deserve it, of course. But this particular day, when my 180-degree change came, we did not go to the ice house as we usually did. We went down to the shop to talk to Dave, and I said, well, there's one thing we're going to need first. Richard said, what's that? I said, well, we need some beer. Richard said, well, what do we need that for? And I said, well, see, that's the, so that Dave can relax. Uh... When we talk to him about his drinking, that's going to make him nervous. And some of y'all are probably wondering how I knew that. <laughs> but I guess that's just one of the promises, you know, intuition. <laughs> so, But I said, if we have some beer, at least he'll know that we're not being judgmental. And Richard said, that's a good idea. So we stopped and got a case of Cold Miller Highlight. <laughs> Which, which ought to be enough to relax any alcoholic. You know. <laughs> well, we went down to the shop and I got into my pitch. And what I would like to tell you is that I told Dave that I thought he ought to cut down. And if he couldn't cut down, I thought he ought to quit. And if he couldn't quit without help, he ought to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. But the reason that I cannot honestly tell you whether or not that is in fact what I told him is that that's when I went into a blackout. And I came out of that blackout in a municipal court of the city of Houston looking at a criminal complaint. And there's good news and bad news about this situation. I looked down at the complaint, and the good news is I'm not the defendant. The bad news is I don't know who is. And my friend, who was a city attorney, came over and said, Doug, you're drunk. And I said, no shit. <laughs> so he said, well, is your client here? And I said, I don't know. So he took the complaint out of my hands because both of us knew there was a judge coming, you know. And it's a good idea to get out of there before they arrive. And he called out this name and some fool in the back of the room was waving his hand, I guess. I... And the city, he turned back to me and he said, Doug, I'm going to dismiss this ticket on one condition. 
And some of y'all would have had some experience with the plea bargaining system. I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and there are people here who understand that this is not how the plea bargaining system ordinarily works. He said, I'll dismiss this ticket on one condition, and I said, you got it, what is it? He said, you have your client drive you home. So we got got out in the hallway, outside the courtroom, and I was introduced to my client. And then something happened at that point that I consider a fifth symptom of alcoholism that I hadn't read about in the big book, but see if this sounds familiar. People within arm's length of you are talking about you in the third person. You know? That's that's usually an indication that what you think is not important to what they're fixing to do. You know? <laughs> and my friend Herb said, uh, I'm going to let you take this guy home. We're going to dismiss your ticket. He said, I want you to do one thing for me. He said, keep him here while I check with it and run and see if he hit anybody on his way down here. So at this point, I'm standing nervously there, shifting weight from one foot to the other and wondering, how I'm, how in the world am I going to talk my way out of this one? And I recovered enough to look Steve straight in the eye and say, do I look drunk to you? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, but do I look really bad drunk? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so I said, well, that's good. And he said, how do you figure that? And I told him, I said, you got a radar ticket in the city of Houston. And you can hardly ever beat a radar ticket in the city of Houston. You're just guilty. You know, if we try this thing to a jury, it's a loser. But sometimes these things are dismissed due to intoxication of counsel. <laughs> well, the neat thing about that was he believed it. You know, just, oh, yeah, good job. You pat me on the back. Right? Well, you know how we are when we're drinking, reliable and rigorously honest. I got outside the building and already broke the plea bargain agreement because I let Steve take me home, uh, let him take me to my office. I wasn't about to let him take me home. That had been the deal, but you know, you can't go home. My wife lived there. <laughs> and she was one of those people that was not supposed to know that I thought I might have a drinking problem. So I went back to my office and did the next right thing. I went into a self-destructive fit and started throwing furniture about, which attracted the attention of my landlord. And he called a doctor. I don't know which one, but it was one of the few doctors who understands our disease. My landlord said, there's a drunk over here and he wants a drink. Should I give him one? And the doctor said, is he violent? My landlord said, yes, at the moment he's throwing his furniture about the office and I'm afraid he's going to break something. The doctor said, by all means, give him a drink. If you're lucky, the son of a bitch will pass out. (laughs) So my landlord brought me a can of Michelob, which I thought was a terrible waste of money. You know, it was five cents a can more expensive than Schlitz. And the difference in quality did not justify the difference in price. And if I'd known it was going to be my last drink, I wouldn't have taken it. But something then happened that I can only attribute to a power greater than myself, which today I can freely identify with the grace of God. And that something is that I was simply too drunk to walk. I had had a nice office 50 feet from a beer joint. And I was too drunk to get up and go 50 feet to buy my own can of beer. And in that condition, I know that I was not capable of having a clear concise, meaningful thought, because if I couldn't walk, I certainly couldn't think. And yet something happened that uh, had to be by some force beyond and greater than myself. I had a lucid interval, and I was allowed to look at about the last six months of my drinking and to examine my catalog of reasons for drinking and to realize that, in fact, 
the things that I took as reasons for drinking were problems principally caused by drinking. For example, uh, I was having marital problems, and I had diagnosed that as being that I had married a Yankee, <laughs> and we just we had religious and cultural differences, and that marriage had never been any good from the beginning. And that night I was allowed to see that part of the problem with my marriage was that I was a chronic bedwetter. And I, I sort of hesitate to say this because we got an Al-Anon speaker tomorrow morning. And I don't know what's going to happen when she gets equal time. But, you know, <coughs> if I had been otherwise a sterling character, that alone will make you difficult to live with. You know, untreated Al-Anons are sick, but even they have standards. And, of course, I was having trouble making a living, and I blame that on liberals, you know. They just won't let you be self-employed in this country anymore, you know. The communists are calling the shots and the tax structure. I don't know why I resented the tax structure. I didn't have any income to pay any taxes. (laughs) I'd had a little problem also with front-end alignment. You know, I had, I had an old Buick that had a tendency to pull off to the right and pick up parked cars. And uh, <laughs> once I took a rain trough off the side of a building. You know. <laughs> and that night I was allowed to see through all those excuses. I was allowed to see that the real problem in my marriage was that I was drinking. The real problem with making a living was that I was drinking. The real problem with controlling the car was that I was drinking. And, of course, I had been arrested once. And I put that down to the lack of training and indiscretion of the Houston police. As a matter of fact, that was a professional hazard and would probably happen again as I became an ever more prominent criminal attorney. Uh, Turns out I was trying to explain one of the finer points of constitutional law to an armed Houston police officer in the middle of a public street in a Spanish-speaking neighborhood at 1 o'clock in the morning. And this was not one of the things I would have attempted to do if I'd been completely sober at the time. So I, I was allowed to see that the things that I was using as excuses to drink were mostly problems caused by my drinking. And, of course, I did the next right thing. Uh, I'm a backdoor alcoholic. The only thing I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous was that you couldn't drink. And I sincerely hoped that I never got that bad. So I called my pastor. And, and this was a drunk trap. He called my wife at my parents' home. And had her pick me up and take me to his house. And he called me back to say that he had arranged a meeting with a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we get out there to his home. And this is getting increasingly more embarrassing. You know, I've now blown my cover. With the city attorney's office, the landlord, the pastor, my, of course, unsuspecting Al-Anon wife, uh, my parents... You know, I'm I'm in shape now where I'm going to have to stop for about 30 days just to prove it won't work. And, I, and I'm waiting for an alcoholic, and what shows up was a guy. I was convinced he was from the finance committee and wasn't going to stay long because he was there on church business. And he came in and said, hi, I'm John, and I'm an alcoholic. Well, you know, I got a load of his shoe shine and diagnosed him as charging $95 an hour and didn't want to take long on this deal. And he said, no, you don't owe me anything. This is one of 12 things I have to do to keep my sobriety. And I'm glad he told me that because I could see that his sobriety obviously benefited him. And if this was something he had to do to keep his sobriety, I could understand it as being something that he might do for me free of charge as long as he got some benefit from it. The next day he taught me two more principles of the 12th step. One is they always drive. (laughs) And the other is they drive slow. And the reason they drive is they don't want you to get loose until after the liquor stores are closed. And the reason they drive slow is they know they're about to turn you over to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they feel like they have to get their licks in before they turn you over to the rest of the nuts, you know. And they started me out on some of my favorite contradictions in this program. You know, you get here and they start telling you things that just don't make sense. 
they say, hi, you know, we're alcoholics and pathological liars. <laughs> but we want you to trust us. Then they say things like, don't make any major decisions during the first year. Go go to the coffee bar, get a cup of coffee, come back, sit down, and say, you need to take the third step. What's that? Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understand. But don't make any major decisions. You know. My first meeting was a drunk trap. I had, you know, I was prepared to talk about the disease concept of alcoholism. And at one point had almost drank my way into an Episcopal seminary. So, uh, I would have been ready to talk about God as we understood Him. You know, what they wanted to talk about was serenity. And I had to admit that I knew absolutely nothing about it. The only thing I thought I knew about serenity was that Joseph Schlitz put it in 12 ounce cans. So that I could get some when I really needed it. And there were people there who called themselves alcoholics. I was really impressed with that. Uh, who were talking about serenity and peace of mind as if they actually had some. And I'd gone in, you know, I'm just delighted that we read the preamble before we begin meetings. Because I think if I'd come into my first meeting and somebody told me I had to take a fearless and searching moral inventory, I'd have been gone. But that's not what they told me. They told me, uh, things like, you know, that there are no dues or fees for AA membership. And I'd brought my little pocket checkbook. Because every place I'd ever been, there was at least a $100 initiation fee. And I was going to bounce a check. You know, I was hanging paper all over Houston anyway. I figured if it's good enough for Safeway, it's damn sure good enough for Alcoholics Anonymous. And they told me I wouldn't have to do that. They said, there are no dues or fees here. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Thank God that can even be a qualified desire to stop drinking. No longer has to be an honest desire to stop drinking. I'm grateful for the tradition of anonymity. You know, because I came in with the notion that I was going to use my middle name. Just in case I saw anybody I recognized... And I hope they'd go home and tell their wife there was somebody named Norm over there that looks a hell of a lot like Doug, you know. <laughs> and they, they began to get me acquainted with the disease concept of alcoholism. I had, I had a limited notion of the disease concept of alcoholism. I was intellectually willing to say that alcoholism was a disease, but what that really meant to me was that your alcoholism might be a disease. Mine was a disgrace. And they started me out with the prospect that I had a disease and that if I wanted to recover, what I'd have to do is work the steps. And, you know, I, I have to say this because I'm seeing people today that are coming in even younger and healthier than we were in 1976. And when I got here, I was told that I probably wasn't going to make it because I hadn't had enough to drink, you know. Um, Fact is that we do have a terminal illness and that only, I, I would hesitate to guess what percentage of alcoholic deaths are recorded as alcoholic deaths. I have a lot of brain and liver cells left just as a simple medical fact. I probably could drink for some period of time and I'd have to be very healthy and very fortunate to live long enough to have the word alcoholism appear on my death certificate. I was beginning to pick fights with people who carry knives. <laughs> and if one of them had stabbed me, it would have been put down as a homicide. And I was in the habit of driving while drinking. And if I'd gone off a freeway or smashed into a telephone pole or something, that probably would have been listed as an accidental death. And my fantasies of suicide were getting closer and closer to reality. You know, sometimes our defects of character work for our benefit. I'd think about how I was going to do myself in. And, you know, the overdose fantasy always ended up with the stomach pump in the emergency room. And the jumping out of a building fantasy always ended up in a wheelchair, but not quite dead. <laughs> Depending on a lo loving Al-Anon to bring me my booze, you understand. I mean, that's terrible. <laughs> and, and, and the old bullet to the brain, you know, I thought, what if I end up blind but not dead? <laughs> and so I, I considered suicide, but never attempted it for fear of failure. You see, for fear of failure, failed to try the first thing I probably would have done right. 
So there is something to be said for defects of character under certain circumstances. But the, the, the point of going through that litany of possibilities is that this is a disease which is terminal in ways that the medical association and even the fellowship don't always recognize. I don't think I have the stamina to get to be a whiner. I think I would have died before it could have been diagnosed as a cause of death. I don't think I had that much time left when I got to this fellowship. And when I realized that the disease was a matter of life and death, that had an interesting effect on my degree of, of commitment to the process of recovery. Now, if the only thing at stake is my life, I ought to pay attention. Right? And they started me off on the steps. The uh, And I want to say this. If you're working the steps and you're having any difficulty with some method, I suggest the method that's outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> And there are some very good reasons, in my opinion, for that. Uh, one is this is the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. Even the 12 and 12, in the forward of the 12 and 12, says, the purpose of this book is to broaden and deepen our understanding of the 12 steps as first written in the earlier novel, in the earlier volume. I mean, if I was to begin the study of nuclear physics, I hope I'd start with the basic text and not try to broaden and deepen my understanding of that about which I know nothing. <laughs> The other thing is that for me, the method that's laid out here is concise, consistent, logical, and complete, and guaranteed by the experience of the first hundred alcoholics and many thousands of others since. The other thing I like about this method, which I'll illustrate as we go through this process, is that I consider that there are drunk traps in this book. Somebody knew that there was going to be a lawyer looking for loopholes, so they put some drunk traps in here. And I'm living proof that half measures will avail us something on one condition, and the condition is that we take the half measures out of this book. If we do this thing about halfway the big book way, there are drunk traps here that will ensure that the process works in spite of the drunk. With the first step, I was, I was not sure that I was powerless over alcohol. I was sure that I could no longer guarantee when and where I was going to appear sober. So I could concede that at least I was powerless over sobriety. You know. and, uh, in my case, it was not so much a reality that every time I started drinking, I immediately or within 24 hours got knee-walking, ditch-crawling drunk. It's just that I never knew for sure when that might happen. If I made an appointment for 10 o'clock Thursday morning, I could not guarantee whether I would be there. And if I got there, I could not guarantee whether I would be sober. So I could admit that I was powerless over alcohol, at least to that extent. Now, I didn't believe that my life was unmanageable. Because for some time I'd gone to great extremes to put up a facade that other people would look at and say, Doug is doing well. You know. But I was sitting in the, in the Spring Branch Club, which was my original home group one night, and I was very nervously looking at my watch. You know, And a fellow sitting across the table from me was nervously looking at me, nervously looking at my watch. And he finally got tired of it and said, what's the matter with you? And I told him, if I don't get a drink in about 15 minutes, I'm going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and he said, let's get a cup of coffee and see if you die. You know, I, I don't know how sponsors are in Arkansas, but we raise them compassionate in Houston, you know. <laughs> well, we did, and I didn't. And about 15 minutes later, he said, how do you feel now? And I told him the same way. He said, let's get another cup of coffee. Finally, he asked me how old I was and what my medical history was, and I told him that. And he said, well, does it seem logical to you that a 27-year-old in otherwise good health would be expecting to die momentarily? And I had to admit that that was at least medically counterindicated. And he said, well, maybe there's something unmanageable going on inside of your skin that's making you feel that way. And I had to take that one home and chew on it and, and come to the conclusion that for me, unmanageability has nothing to do with whether or not my life is in order according to the world's expectations. It's a simple question of the fact that since I am the only living human being who has to spend the rest of my life in my own company, that if I cannot do that with some degree of acceptance and with some degree of serenity, 
and in addition to that, make my conduct conform to some minimal standard of what is a socially acceptable norm, and you can translate that as legal, then there's something unmanageable going on that's making me think and feel and act in that way. So I no longer feel that I have to call the credit bureau to find out if my life is unmanageable. It's a question of, and this is one of the promises after the fifth step, by the way, is can I be alone at perfect peace and ease? And if I cannot, there's something unmanageable going on inside of my skin that's making me feel that way. Second step was insulting. You know, the second step suggests that we're insane and have to find a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. I would admit that some of my drinking behavior was insane. And, and one way of illustrating that is, is very simple. You know, I, I would put together the result with the intention. And the, Joe and Charlie were doing a little bit of this earlier today, you know, but I never thought, the Oilers won, let's celebrate, let's go out and sideswipe some parked cars. <laughs> just did it, you know. Um, never said, gee, I've had a hard day at the office, I need to relax, I think I'll go out and get arrested. There was an intervening step in the process. Somewhere along the way, I took a drink. And I could see that that was insane. Uh, when I got more acquainted with the disease concept of alcoholism, and they said it was a progressive terminal illness, I found a medical parallel in cancer, which is a progressive terminal illness. And when I compare alcoholic thinking with that medical parallel, then the insanity becomes extremely clear to me. No cancer patient ever got a thousand miles away from home and thought, maybe I can get away with a teeny little malignancy <laughs> on a perfectly obscure corner of my body where nobody will know I got it. <laughs> they don't come down the aisle in airplanes and say, sir, would you like a tumor? But if they did, no cancer patient would say, certainly, give me two of them. <laughs> Yet this is typical of alcoholic thinking respecting the first drink. And I, I got into a syndrome here where I knew that I was, I was going to need some help. They describe uh, three ways in which people begin to drink again. Uh, there's the casual drink, the careless drink, and finally they talk about the deliberate drink, the one we took deliberately in spite of some period of premeditation as to what the consequences might be. And I had to admit that while I still thought I might have an effective mental defense against the casual or careless drink, that there were times when I began to drink in spite of what I knew the consequences might be, simply because reality was so intolerable that the promise of a couple of hours of escape outweighed the risk of what might happen if I took the drink. And I knew that that deliberate drink was going to get me unless I could find a way to make enough peace with the real world to not need and want that drink. And the, the ultimate insanity of my alcoholism turns out to be a failure of acceptance so complete that the next drink was impossible to avoid, sometimes in spite of the consequences. And that turns out to be a condition which the big book describes as self-will run riot. In connection with this concept of a power greater than myself, I have to honestly say that while I had the word God in my vocabulary, that, that this God was a largely theoretical and indifferent being that was going to watch my life from a great distance and primarily be interested three days after I died to add up the good and the bad to find out whether or not I won. And I had no power greater than myself that could help me in present circumstances. The first power greater than myself that I observed was the man who became my sponsor. And he was going through some turmoil in his life that I couldn't imagine going through. And he was going through it sober and with a degree of self-acceptance bordering on arrogance. And if you're, if you're in doubt about a sponsor and you need one, you know what they told me is a sponsor is somebody who's been sober at least 24 hours longer than you have who has what you want. And this man had three and a half years in a Cadillac. <laughs> But he was the first person, place, or thing that I could put into that scheme that constituted the power greater than myself that had enough immediate presence and reality, tangibility, if you, if it, as it is, 
that I could put some confidence in him and trust him and, and follow what he suggested. <coughs> and the third step, <coughs> I was really disappointed in the third step. Uh, to begin with, I, you know, I'm a lawyer, and I can read. I've got a lot of degrees, and so does a rectal thermometer. <laughs> and um, for those of you who are close enough to see the 12 steps here on the wall, what I read was uh, turned... T-U-R-N-E-D, past tense, our will in our lives, parentheses, from this day forward, close parentheses, over to the care of God as we understood it. And that's honestly the way I read it. I thought he had to do something dramatic to turn it over once and for all. <laughs> and that's why we need sponsors. You need somebody that can read to tell you what this says. And the good news is all the answers are in the big book. The bad news is you can't get them that way. And I got to got to the third step, and I thought there had to be a ritual at least similar to immersion baptism, and nothing happened, you know. And ultimately, as a matter of fact, I have to give credit to a speaker I heard up in Hot Springs talking about making a decision, and talking about three frogs on a lily pad, and one of them makes a decision to leap off, and then the question is how many frogs are left on the lily pad, and it's a trick question because the answer is three. You know, he may have made a decision, but he ain't left until he's left. <laughs> and when I when I realized that the first three words of the third step are made a decision, it became a great deal easier to plug that into my program. And uh, I made a decision, had made a decision to turn my will and my life over to a providence of some kind when I got in this a very common idea, when I got to AA with an intention to stick, I had already decided to turn a part of my life over to a power greater than myself. What the big book suggests, on page 63, there's a prayer, and they suggest a form of words, which they say is completely optional as long as we express the idea without reservation, but there's this thought. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. And here's where I hit the first of what I thought were loopholes. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. So I went down the list. I said, my wife is a missionary atheist. My best friend is a dog. And I'm still too proud to go to my spiritual advisor and tell him that after seven years as a member of his church, I know nothing about God. And after all, it's better to make God alone than with someone who might misunderstand. So, having done that, I went ahead with the process, and I, I hit this fascinating suggestion up here in the fifth step. And uh, in case this rubs anybody wrong, I, you know, it's nice that I don't have to take credit for it. It's in the big book, so I don't have to. I don't have to claim this one. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession must. They say there are no musts in the big book, and there's one of them. And of course we'll want to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty it is to receive it. Though we have no religious connection, we may still do well to talk with someone ordained by an established religion. So, at that time I was a member of the Disciples of Christ. You know how we are, we sort of go church shopping. And I made an appointment with my pastor, because he was someone ordained by an established religion. And when I got there, this is on the top of page 75, when we decide who is to hear our story, we waste no time. We have a written inventory and are prepared for a long talk. We explain to our partner what we are about to do and why we have to do it. So now I'm in the pastor's study with his fourth step, and I'm saying, you remember the night I sobered up in your living room? And needless to say, he had not forgotten it. I'm not sure he's got the sofa clean yet. And I said, well, I'm in this program, and I made this decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God, and then they told me to take this inventory and bring it to you. Well, you see, what I just accidentally did was in the process of trying to do the fifth step about halfway the big book way, I just accidentally finally did the third step right. Because in telling him what I was about to do and why I had to do it, I totally by chance took the third step with my spiritual advisor. So for me, step five became a drunk trap for people that didn't take step three right. But I haven't found any other suggested method of recovery that's written that tightly. 
that there are these safety nets in there for those of us who are dedicated to half measures. And uh, you just can't go through the process without hitting the drunk traps. Of course, in talking about the fifth step, I skipped over one that I think is relatively important, the fourth. Uh, the first question about the fourth step is when should you take the fourth step? The radical advice I got was not later than two weeks you know, and not sooner than two years after your last drink. That was in 1976. Since then, I've heard somebody say it should be 20 minutes after your last drink. And I've heard somebody else say not before five years sobriety. I'm convinced if I stay sober just a little bit longer, we'll have people who are taking the fourth step while taking their last drink. But the advice I finally took and the advice I'll pass on to you is that if you take the fourth step sometime before you take your first drink, you're right on schedule. And if you miss that deadline, you're too late. And for me, the time came on a Wednesday morning when I had decided that life was not worth the effort, sobriety was too difficult. And I had made a decision to start drinking. The trouble was I had an hour and a half to kill before the beer joint opened. And I thought to myself, I'll give this thing one more chance. And I got the book, and I'm grateful for this book. On page 65, it suggests an example, and it suggests we are as definite as this example. I have seen some suggested methods of taking the fourth step that I wouldn't recommend to anybody I wasn't trying to assassinate. But this book says that we started out with a grudge list. And there's nobody in this room that can't do that. One thing you never ask an alcoholic is who he's mad at. Because he'll tell you. And that's a drunk trap. Because they ask you to put down a resentment list and then they ask you to put down the cause. And finally they ask you to look at where you were affected. And in going through the process... I put down my most current resentment, which was my landlord, and then I put down the cause. Well, see, I had this little 9 by 12 office. It was not carpeted. The air conditioning and plumbing were unreliable. We had a gravel parking lot. It was way below my standards and overpriced, of course. Never mind that I picked it. And, of course, it's next door to a beer joint, you know, which is why I picked it. But then they asked me to look at where I felt threatened. And when I thought about that, that was that was one that I had to chew on the pencil for a while and think about, do I feel threatened? I could not see a connection between my resentments and fear until I asked myself if I felt threatened and could finally say, yes, I owe the man some money and I owe the man some work. And he's a direct threat to my self-esteem and to my financial security. And when I, for me, this was a process sort of like starting a bottle of ketchup. Getting to that level of honesty was not easy, but once it started, it flowed. You know, when I had the grace to recognize the fear that lay behind that resentment, the rest of the process was relatively easy. And again, I know of no method that works as well as the method suggested in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, of course, for the fifth step, I'm doing doing half measures again. The fifth step specifically says we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And I didn't. I admitted to God because he already knew and to another human being because they told me I'd get drunk if I didn't, but never to myself on any level that I found understandable and acceptable the exact nature of my wrongs. And I moved on to the sixth step, which for those of you close enough to read, says, having discovered what it was that we did not like about ourselves, we set out by force of will to remake ourselves in our own image. And that's what I tried to do. You know, it was New Year's resolution time. There lies the way of frustration. You know, I finally got back to my sponsor, and we got back to some remedial reading. You know. And he said, well, read that sixth step. What does it say? And I said, it says, we're entirely ready to have God. And he said, stop, read that again. We're entirely ready to have God. And he said, stop, read that again. We're entirely ready to have God. And he said, stop, read that again. You know, by this time, in spite of my college education, I'm beginning to get the notion (laughs) that I'm only responsible to be ready to have God do something. And when we got to that point of willingness, we got to the seventh step prayer on page 76. 
And I, I usually try to quote this thing, but I think this time I'll read it. When ready, so there's another one of those hints about when to take the step. It doesn't say 90 days. It doesn't say six months. It doesn't say upon orders from a sponsor. It says when ready. You know. We say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. It says, we have then completed step seven. Well, for those of you who think that the removal of defects of character requires a lifetime effort on your own part, page 76 says we have then completed step seven. And I'm very much interested in the idea that there's the word amen at the end of the seventh step prayer and not at the end of the third step prayer. And the reason, as I now understand it, is that between the point of decision suggested in step three and the end of the prayer on page 76 at the end of step seven, there is a process by which we go from decision through action to a point of completion. And, you know, I did drop out of Sunday school at the level where you find out you don't color Jesus green. <laughs> but I know that a prayer is supposed to end with this word, amen. You know. And that word's there for a reason. Because it signals the end of a process. But see, what was important for me about this is it said I was going to give him all of me, good and bad. That I wasn't even necessarily responsible to judge which was which. And at that point, I had been trying to get right with God, and AA was saying, you have the right idea, but you have the shoe on the wrong foot. What you do is you get with God and let him get you right. And when I realized I was going to give him the good and the bad, I could finally admit to myself the exact nature of my wrongs. Because I wasn't responsible to judge him. Wasn't responsible to sort him out. When that happened, a funny thing happened. Some promises materialized, which are on the bottom of page 75. We, we can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. And this one, the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. Well, for me, these materialized when I became willing to give God the good and the bad and therefore could admit to myself what was really going on. So for me, step seven became a drunk trap for people that didn't do step five right. And then in eight and nine, I, I came to the conclusion that, that the steps are in order for a reason. And you remember the parenthetical clause I put in the third step that we're going to turn, turn, which is not there. But okay, now I've got made a decision, but I still got my parenthetical clause from this day forward. Fact of the matter is that on the day on which I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, as I then understood Him, I already had a past. And how in the world are you going to turn over the past? And AA suggested to me that we have a list of all persons we have harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. If there's, if there's any confusion about that, the eighth step and ninth step begin on page 76. The list that you made when you took inventory is on page 67. So it's hard to get confused, you know, about which page they're on. Whichever page you're on, just reverse the numbers and go to the other one. You know, you'll find out what you're doing. Well, you know, either that's a printer's error or the higher power has a sense of humor. They also put the part about sex on page 69. First place an alcoholic's going to look, John. Well, it turns out for me that steps eight and nine are a way of turning over the past to the extent we still can by making amends for the things we've done in the present to the best of our ability. So that as I understand the process today, and interestingly enough, the promises on page 83 and 84 come in after the ninth step, and I believe today that's for a reason. The reason is that at that point we've completed the process up to that day. The first step today, as I understand it, is only the statement of the problem. The second step is only the statement of the solution. The third step suggests we make a decision to go for the solution. 
Then you take four and five to find out what you're talking about. I said, what is my will? They said, take an inventory and find out. Take five to check out my honesty with another human being. Six was a process of becoming willing, and seven was a process by which I turned it over the best I could up to that day. And then through eight and nine, I turned over the past the best I could. And there's a reason that the promises come in at that point. I understand that at the end of the ninth step, we've completed that process. And I'll say this. This book talks about recovered alcoholics. And if you've completed the first nine steps... Halfway the big book way, you have my permission and encouragement to call yourself a recovered alcoholic. But remember this. We went out to a bar and got in a fight, and one of us got shot. We'd probably be taken to a hospital, and over a period of time, the wound would heal, and we would recover. We'd be a recovered gunshot victim. But that would not make us bulletproof. And I think it's important that we communicate to the newcomer and to the general public that we have a solution to the problem of alcoholism, and for that reason I prefer to call myself a recovered alcoholic. That's the good news. The bad news is 10, 11, and 12 are a drunk trap for people that didn't do the first nine right. (laughs) And I'm a case of arrested spiritual development. I'm stuck in this paragraph on page 84 on the 10th step, which suggests that we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, and the magic word is when and not if, (laughs) when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. And there's a period at the end of that sentence. And it says, then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. And for years, you know, being well-educated... I would continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, discuss them with someone immediately, make amends well when it became convenient, and ask God to remove them, and ask God to direct my attention to what I could do for someone else. There's a reason for the punctuation here. That's the end of a sentence, and the next sentence says specifically, then we direct our attention to what we can do for someone else. And there's a principle involved in that. The principle is that my resentments are about 160 pounds too heavy even for God until I get off of them. And then if I'll direct my attention to what I can do for someone else, he does his work much better. I also have to believe, and that's an example of it, the fact that the punctuation is in just that place suggests to me that this book had a divine editor. Because I can can accept the theory that a monkey at a typewriter might eventually produce the Gettysburg Address. But I can't believe that a hundred alcoholic monkeys using the committee system, could produce the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have any doubt about that, think back to your last group conscience meeting. And ask yourself, could my home group have written this book? I don't know how it is in Arkansas, but the A-Leaf group is lucky to be able to elect a general service representative. Well, the 11th step suggests prayer and meditation, and it would be very easy to to get confused about this. Uh, Prayer, they say, is talking to God, and meditation is listening to God. That may be true for you. When I listen to God, they don't call it meditation, they call it paranoid schizophrenia. (laughs) But fortunately for me, I discovered a principle that says that having just made conscious contact with God, it's not likely that we're going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for such presumption with all sorts of absurd actions and ideas, and I have. But I've discovered that the second tradition suggests that a loving God may speak to us through our group conscience. And that suggests to me that if I'll come to a meeting willing to listen, that I can get in at least one hour of constructive meditation even on a bad day, because a loving God may speak to me through the group. I've developed, as a result of paying for my presumption with all sorts of absurd actions and ideas, I've developed three standards for what makes sense, whether or not to do something, whether or not it's God's will. It's a process of elimination. You know, Lord, our, our friend Floyd says, I don't always know what God's will is, but I usually know what it ain't. And uh, 
I've come to the conclusion that I should, sub- should submit any idea to three standards, even if an angel came to me in a dream and says, do it. The first test is, does it make sense? And since I am not a good judge of what makes sense, I translate that into, would a dog do it? (laughs) Now, since there are some things dogs do that I shouldn't, I have to submit it to a second standard, and that is, does the group approve? I got into a deal uh, that, uh, that was marvelous. You know, we had God's will. We were going to pull off a financial miracle. And what we got was sued. <laughs> and uh, you know, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous' opinions I respected thought it was a crack brain scheme from the get-go. And I should have paid more attention to them. The third standard is, will it hurt anybody? And if I submit any idea to those three tests, if a dog would do it, the group approves and it won't hurt anybody, you might as well do it. It might not be God's will, but the worst thing that's going to happen under those circumstances is you'll have to go back and do a tenth step on it if you turn out to be wrong. Uh, the eleventh step to me is a good place to say this, too. I have I came in through a church, and I am a member of a church, and I have nothing against religion. I don't discourage the people I sponsor from going to church, but I don't particularly encourage it either. And there's a reason for that. Christianity, as I understand it, is for healthy people. The the cornerstone of Christianity is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that presumes that you love yourself. It's a good thing I didn't treat people the way I expected to be treated. Christianity, it seems to me, is based on the ability to give and accept forgiveness. Most alcoholics can't do that. I've come to believe today that we need to take these 12 steps to get well enough to be anything else. And, and and I'm convinced today that the most reliable source of inspiration for me is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous as interpreted by the group conscience. So when I get off in a corner and read it myself, I get some strange things out of this book. You know? <laughs> the 12th step says, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. For me, the spiritual awakening and the message are one and the same. Uh, I had an awakening in the sense of an opening of the eyes to a pre-existing fact when I discovered that alcoholism was a disease and that AA had a solution. And as a result of the disease concept of alcoholism and the spiritual program of action, I came to an awakening of a sense of my own worth as a human being and child of God. I came to you people with a feeling of worthlessness, and you said, no, you're not worthless, you're sick. But for that, we have a solution. And with this awakening to a sense of my value as a human being, I had what I consider to be a spiritual awakening as opposed to a spiritual experience. That was something that was always true, but something I could not recognize. And as a result of the 12 steps, I opened my eyes to the reality of that. That also happens to be the message that I can most effectively carry to the next alcoholic is that, hey, you're not worthless, you're only sick. And for that, we have a solution. I'm grateful also for the use of the word tried in the 12th step, especially as it relates to trying to practice these principles in all our affairs, because I don't always get to claim great success in doing it. But I've discovered that if I can honestly say that I have tried to practice these principles on a daily basis, that I no longer have to apologize to anyone for the way I'm trying to live my life today and walk down the street with my head up and my shoulders back, not fearing to run into anyone, because I don't have to apologize for what I'm trying to do, whether I'm doing it well or not. And for me, that's a 180-degree change from the way things were when I got to you people. I want to say the theme of this thing is it works, it really does. I want to suggest that that's on page 87, no, 88, of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, right in the middle of discussing the 11th step, saying... As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. Ben says it works, it really does. 
And to put that in context, they're talking about prayer and meditation. I don't know, I'm, I'm convinced, and, and Job suggested it today, that there are really two programs in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's the one that's outlined in the book and the one that's sort of developed over time. You know, and I caution anybody that wants to come in and go to 90 meetings in 90 days and not drink and hope for the best, that you may not find that it works. But if you're willing to come in and try this thing even halfway the big book way, it's been my experience that it works. If there's any need to illustrate that, let me go back to the things I was telling you about when I got here. I'm practicing the same profession that at that point I was failing in. I'm married to the same woman that at that point I thought I was going to get divorced from. We've come through that period of perceived mutual need through a period of indifference and into a period of wanting to be together. Where we once were together because we thought we needed each other, which is clearly a sick relationship, we're now together because we honestly want to be, and we're in business together, and we now have a child. Uh, the, the greatest miracle in my recent life, as a direct result of sobriety and the principles of this program, is just a beautiful, I'm going to say perfect little daughter, who has the opportunity to grow up in a sane, calm, functional family because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and yeah, you, you better believe that. Oh, that gets to me when I think about it. And in closing, I want to remind you that it is because a loving God works through people like you that I'm sober today. And for that, I thank you.